How many Office fans do I have out there? Nice, way better than the first service. No offense to the first service. There's an episode called The Health Healthcare in the first season. You've got Michael Scott, and he's the, the manager of the office. He's tasked with selecting a newer, cheaper, not as good version of healthcare for the office there. But Michael doesn't like giving bad news, right? He wants everyone to love him. There's an, office, an episode in the next season where he says that. They do these talking heads where they just kind of talk to him, and he says, would I rather be feared or loved? Easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. <laughs> he knows that there's going to be opposition to what he has to do. He knows people are going to be not happy with him about it. So he does the Michael thing and hands it off to Dwight, who in many ways is, is opposite. He doesn't really care what his coworkers, which he likes to refer to as his subordinates, think about it. Where Michael doesn't want to pick a health care plan, he doesn't want people mad at him, he doesn't want them to think poorly of him, Dwight's the opposite. Dwight, Dwight's like ruthlessly cutting anything, even extra stuff. Michael's avoiding it. He's like hiding in his office so people can't talk to him. And Dwight's doing the opposite. He's in their face. He's saying, I need you to list out your diseases if you want them covered. <laughs> so naturally, Jim and Pam are like making stuff up, but that. we get this picture. Like it's funny the way that it plays out, but I think Michael and Dwight actually show us caricatures of how we can be. especially when we know opposition's coming. Some of us tend toward Michael Scott. We avoid things at all costs. Try to put the responsibility on someone else. We don't want to be put in that position. Others of us love the fight. We'll be right in your face about it. We'll start it. We'll make it worse care more about our performance and what we're doing than about the people that we're engaging with. This morning we're going to see that opposition comes to the church. And that we don't have to avoid it like Michael. We don't have to egg it on and be hostile towards others like Dwight. There's actually a better way. See what that looks like. I'm going to read this whole passage here so we get the flow of it together. Acts 4, 1 to 31. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, 
By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief of priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your servant, or our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us that we might know you. We thank you for giving us of your spirit that we might understand your word. We ask that you would help us this morning, that you would enlighten our minds to understand, that you would burrow it deep into our hearts that our lives would be built on the foundation of Christ and that we'd be more like him because of it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage this morning doesn't just come out of nowhere. They don't just get arrested for no reason, kind of. But it comes off the heels of chapter 3 where we saw this crippled man was healed in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then the crowd gathers around wondering what's happened. How did this happen? And Peter preaches a sermon to them saying that it is by Christ. And he urges them to repent of their sin. 
to turn to God in faith. This morning, we see the aftermath. We see that God is faithful to His Word going out, that it does not return void. It says here that the men who believed were 5,000. The number keeps increasing as we're going through Acts. In chapter 1, it's 120 people. In chapter 2, it's 3,000. Now we're 5,000 men. So there are debates on whether that's 5,000 total or women and children could be many more. In God's Word, they believe and they're saved. But we also see the beginning of opposition to the church here in the book of Acts. As we look at this, we're going to see the reason for the opposition. We're going to see an appropriate response to the opposition. And we're going to see the rationale and empowerment for that response. So let's look first at the reason for opposition. The fact that opposition will come should be no surprise for us. If they've been hanging out with Jesus, they would realize this. In John 15, we have the account where Jesus tells them, that the servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And then throughout the New Testament, if we read the letters, almost all of them mention suffering for the sake of Christ. I want to say 1 Timothy doesn't, but he gets it in 2 Timothy. Over and over again, that's the expectation for the church until Christ returns. And in other parts of the world, we see the depth of this suffering. It's not all that different from the apostles here. If you know the tradition, the tradition says that only one of the apostles, John, didn't die for his faith. That he died in old age. The rest were martyred. We see those same things happening today. Imprisonment, beatings, death. Open Door Ministries reports in the 50 most persecuted countries last year. 4,500 Christians were killed for their faith. Another 4,000 were imprisoned. They estimate 340 million Christians living in extreme persecution. It's the reality around the world, but we've been somewhat sheltered from this as our, as our culture was based on and shaped a lot by Christianity and Christian values that we haven't gotten the brunt of it like that. You know, it's not to downplay the real losses that we might or that we should expect to experience on behalf of Christ. They're real. And Christ cares. But it just puts it in perspective. Hopefully it encourages us that we should be praying for those people. And that it would encourage us that as we see that, that we could say, if they can put it all on the line, then so can we. I think for many of us, we don't even get to the point where we face any sort of opposition. More like the Michael Scott, where we avoid it at all costs. You know, whether it's because we've come to embrace this idea that religion should be private, that it shouldn't affect other aspects of my life, or whether it's because we're afraid of the potential for opposition or backlash. Even if we've never experienced it, we're afraid that it could happen, and so we're quiet. 
I don't know if you've ever experienced that, even in evangelism. I've done that. You know, like you wimp out a bunch of times because you're afraid how they're going to respond. And then you finally do it and it's fine. (laughs) The perception that it could happen scares us to death. It paralyzes us oftentimes. But if we're following Christ, we should expect to face opposition, that it will come. And we shouldn't be afraid of it. Instead, we should be prepared for it. Hopefully, as we look at this, this morning, we'll be more prepared when we leave here to face it. It also means that we don't just go looking for it. We're not Dwight, right? I mean, we see this a lot. It's like we want to fight. We want to start stuff. We want to stir the pot. We need to ask, if I'm suffering, am I suffering for Christ? Or is it for something else? Dan mentioned this a couple weeks ago, that sometimes people don't like us and don't want anything to do with us, not because of Jesus, but because we're jerks. That we're not loving and kind to people. Sometimes people are not nice to us because they're jerks, and they're not nice to anyone. Sometimes it's because we say one thing and we do another. And we're not consistent with the way that we live and what we preach. If we're faithfully following Christ, loving others well, we will face opposition for Christ. So we see with Peter and John here, they face opposition from those in authority in the temple. That's the priest, the captain of the temple, who's like in charge of the the police, the temple police, basically, and he's second command under the high priest. And the Sadducees, who are these people who had kind of political power, who didn't believe in the resurrection, who as far as the Jewish people went, sat in a pretty good situation politically. And Peter and John face opposition, says, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. We will face opposition if we're doing those things because the world and the devil are against Christ. They're persecuted for bearing witness to Jesus and to his resurrection. But Peter echoes Jesus in his epistle saying that we're blessed because of it. I'd encourage you to read 1 Peter this week as you think through what it looks like to face opposition and suffering on behalf of Christ. It's in chapters 2, 3, 4, over and over, examples and descriptions of suffering for Christ. I'll just read chapter 4 to you. Part of it, not the whole thing. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. But you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as murderers, or as thieves, or as evildoers, or as meddlers. 
last one gets kind of thrown in there. If we're walking faithfully with Christ, if we're bearing witness to him, opposition will come. In one form or another, we'll face it. Let's not try to avoid it by forsaking the truth. But let it come because of Christ. Not because we're meddlers. Not because we're stirring the pot. Because we want to get stuff started. Trying to get a reaction. Let it come on account of Him. For living faithfully, opposition will come because of Christ. The question is, how will we respond? Let's see how Peter and John respond to it. They're arrested. They're held overnight just until the court can meet in the morning. The Sanhedrin is what they call it, the Jewish court. Now, it's all the power brokers, the Jewish power brokers there in Jerusalem, the rulers, the elders, the scribes, the high priestly family, they're all gathered together against them. And they're the ones with the power here as they're questioning like, we're the ones who authorize teaching. They're annoyed because the other people are teaching, that they're proclaiming something that they don't agree with. And it'd be like a semicircle. They'd be gathered around it, and Peter and John would be like stuck in the middle. And they asked, by what power or by what name did you do this? And you can imagine the undertones. We're the ones with the power. You don't get to just do it. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, responds. And you can see like, listen to what Peter says. It's like nonsensical that there's a trial here. He says, if we're being tried... Because of a good deed done to a crippled man. (laughs) Why would someone be on trial for doing a good deed to a crippled man? Doesn't make any sense. But if that's what we're on trial for, then everyone should know. Not just you, but all the people of Israel. It was done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Whom you killed and whom God raised from the dead. That's how this guy's standing here well. Jesus. Then he quotes from Psalm 118, saying that Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So when they build a stone building, the cornerstone was like the most important stone that they laid. It's the foundation. It holds the weight of the two walls. It sets the direction for the whole building. It dictates its stability. It's integrity. It's squareness. And the picture is that these leaders are down in the quarry looking for the stone that they're going to choose. And they look at this one and say, nope. Pass it over. They reject it. See here, that this stone not only becomes a stone in the building, but it becomes the most important one. That's Jesus. They rejected him. They killed him. But God raised him from the dead. The one they dishonored, God has honored. And not only that, but there's no other option. There's no one else coming. His name is the only name under heaven by which you must be saved. And they see Peter and John's boldness. 
to proclaim this even to them as they're on trial. They recognize that they're uneducated common men. Doesn't mean they're dumb, don't know what's going on. Means they didn't receive the training, the education, like most of these guys did. How could they be so bold in what they're proclaiming and interpreting our scriptures? What do they know? Who are they to say that Jesus is the Messiah? And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You got to remember these guys are against Jesus. That's not a good thing for them. It's not a positive. They're the ones who just a few months previously had killed him. That's why when Peter says, whom you crucified, I don't think that's an attack against the people. I do think it's an indictment against them, but I don't think it's an attack against them. The leaders don't have a problem with the fact that they crucified Jesus. It's a fact. What they have a problem with is the proclamation of the resurrection. So they want to do something. They want to say something against them. Because they don't like Jesus. They don't want his name spreading. But the guy they healed is standing right there. So what do you say? Nuh-uh. There's nothing they can say. They send him away to talk about it. Like everyone in Jerusalem knows this guy. He's over 40 years old. He'd been sitting there at the gate every day. Everyone knows him. And they see him healed. And the people are praising God because of it. What can we do? We can't punish them for that. Not with all the people having seen it. So they come to the conclusion that they'll charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Just as a quick aside, notice what they can't do to just squelch this whole thing. Something that would end it instantly. They can't say, Jesus is dead. Go look in his tomb. Because he's not. He's alive. How do Peter and John respond to this? They say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. A more literal translation is, we are not able not to speak about it. We can't help it. We can't do anything else. I know that some of us are facing ever-changing policies at work or places we volunteer or interact. And things might sound kind of similar. Might sound like there are threats for what we say, claims we make about Christ, or how we should live in light of his word. I can't tell you the exact details of what it looks like for you to live faithfully in your situation. For some of us, it might mean speaking up where we're tempted to be silent, where we're afraid. For others, it might mean speaking less and listening more. For some of us, it might mean 
disobeying policies and recognizing that we might face consequences for it. It's a reality. I can't tell you exactly what it means for you. But I can tell you how we get to the point where we can make those decisions. It's not by pumping ourselves up. It's not by beating ourselves up for not having done it before, for wimping out, I'm going to do better this time. Pull yourself up, give yourself a pep talk. It's not how we do it. Instead, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. We see that with Peter. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's when we actually embrace Peter's message to the Sanhedrin. Where he says there is salvation in no one but Jesus. Do you actually believe that? That it goes against everything our culture says. Like what we're told over and over again is, whatever's fine, be a good person, you'll be good. There are a lot of ways to salvation. Whatever works for you, do that, but kind of keep it to yourself and don't force it on anyone else. And when we talk about salvation, we don't really mean being saved from anything. We don't need that. But you might find your purpose. Find meaning. Find fulfillment. But as popular as that message is, it's a lie. There is transcendence. That there's something beyond us. We all feel it. We all long for it. Even if we reject it in our minds. We feel the winds of it. That there's a God who actually created us, who cares for us, who made us for a life better than we could imagine. But we've rebelled against him. Our relationship with him has been severed because of sin. The only way that we can be restored is through Christ. That we can be saved from our sin saved from its consequences, and restored to the way we were meant to be. It's through Jesus. There's no other way. Do you believe that? If we really do, how could we not talk about it? Many of you have probably heard the quote from Penn Jillette, Penn and Teller, he's an atheist. He said this probably a decade or so ago. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Proselytize is trying to get people to convert to your religion or whatever. He says, I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. 
And this is more important than that. Reaction there, it's almost like Peter and John, I'm not able not to tell you. I'm not trying to guilt you into sharing with people or saying that you hate them if you don't. I think there are other reasons why we might not. I don't know that they're good reasons, but there are other reasons. You don't just hate everyone. Hope not. And also, this, I don't think this negative view is the proper motivation. Right? But that's the perspective. Eternal life, heaven, hell. And it's true. And it is a motivation. But the best and most proper motivation is actually what Christ has done for me. And sharing that. That he's given me life. That he's changed me. That he's saved me. I can't not tell you. And it's available to you too. We need to wrestle with the implications of what Peter says. And ask, do we really believe the claims of Christ? Do we really believe that he's done this for us? And if so, how might that change the way that we live and interact with others? To put it in the language quoted from Psalm 118, is Christ the cornerstone upon which you're building your life? Is he your foundation that gives everything in your life direction and stability? Or is he just another brick in the wall? A good test is if we're forced to make a choice, like Peter and John are here. To whom will you listen? Does Christ reign supreme? Or will you reject him and let your employer, your friends, or our culture set the direction for your life? What is your life actually built upon? Is it built on your career? your social standing, your family. None of these things can support it. It will crumble and fall and you will be crushed. But if we understand what Christ has done, if we build our lives upon Him, we're secure. And when that choice comes, it's not even a choice. I'm not able not to talk about it. See here, Peter and John, they don't acquiesce. They don't cave to the threats. Nor do they attack people there. They proclaim Christ. We've seen the reason for opposition. The world hates Christ. And our culture especially hates his exclusive claim. We've seen the proper response. Standing firm as a faithful witness built upon Christ. The cornerstone. Now we ask, how can they do that? 
What's the rationale or empowerment for that? When we face these winds and waves of opposition, after they're released, verse 23, they go and tell their friends everything that had happened. And they pray together. If you remember the end of chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. It's one of the marks of the church there. And what do they pray? They address God as sovereign Lord, creator of all things, who told us through David that people would be gathered against Christ and that what they have done, you had predestined to take place. They acknowledge that God's in control, even of his son's death. even of their own persecution. The passage in 1 Peter that I quoted earlier ends like this. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's what we see here. Resting in an, in an acknowledgement of God's control over what's happening. And resting in the fact he is faithful to his covenant and to his promises, that he loves his people, that he will take care of them, that he will provide for them. He will give them everything they need. They acknowledge this, so then what do they ask for? They don't pray that they would be safe and that nothing would happen to them. They don't pray against the Jewish leaders and ask the Lord to destroy them. They ask that God would look at the threats, not remove them, but consider them, and help them to continue to speak God's word with boldness. While God continues to heal and perform signs and wonders through Christ, they just say, God, help us to stay bold in proclaiming your word. And God answers their prayer. He fills them with the Holy Spirit and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. How different is this approach from what we hear and what we read? As we hear that in America, our religious liberties are being threatened. We're told that we need to be afraid of what can happen. That we need to fear the bills that are being drafted, the court decisions that are being handed down, the corporate policies that are being put in place. That we need to be afraid of them. Is God not sovereign over those things as well? Instead of fear, should we not rather entrust ourselves, not to our constitution or to our bill of rights, but to the faithful creator? To the one who made all things, who governs all things, the one who loves us and gave his only son to save us. Should we not devote ourselves to prayer, not for our safety, 
not for the destruction of our enemies, but for boldness to proclaim God's word with love. That others might believe in the only name under heaven by which they might be saved. That God would heal our brokenness and bring the dead to life. May we be a people who know and who live in the reality of this. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, it says we are not our own, but we belong body and soul and life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That he watches over us in such a way that not a hair falls from our heads apart from his will. And that all things work together for our salvation. And we build our lives wholly upon him. That when opposition does come, that we will stand firm, empowered by the Holy Spirit, being so changed that we're not able not to speak of the things we have seen and heard.